0: With that said, I've asked Tom to come and join me in reading the scripture today. And that's a little unusual, because Jeremiah 10 is a duet. We're not going to sing. He could get away with that, not me. But it's a duet in which two voices are woven together into one song. And first one voice sings, and then the other, and then the first sings again. And the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner... Uh, describes the duet as a polemic and a psalm. Now, a polemic is an attack, an objection, a critique, an argument against something false. And so the polemical voice in this song speaks against the idols of the nations and tells us they're worthless. But then there's the psalm part, which is speaking of, uh, it's a song of praise for the matchless worth of the God of the universe. And so there is this uh, two themes running side by side. The idols are worthless, and God is of greatest value. So we are going to read this, and Tom will have the part of the Lord, um, and I will have uh, Jeremiah. I told them that if like it didn't go well and God didn't like it, I was going to stand off to the side just in case. So I'm going to let you start.
1: I, <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is
0: none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his
1: indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens.
0: It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, the Lord of hosts is his name
1: gather up your bundle from the ground O you who dwell under siege for thus says the Lord behold I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it
0: woe is me because of my hurt my wound is grievous but as but I said truly this is an affliction and I must bear it my tent is destroyed And all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains, for the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered.
1: A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation. A layer of jackals.
0: I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, have had laid waste. To his habitation. Thank you. So that's a little bit different, but gives you the sense of what's going on in this text, that it's a dialogue, and we don't often read it that way. So let's dive in, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And even though it reads a little differently, remind us that we need it, that everything we need. Uh, to live the Christian life, to know what to believe, comes from you. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it's the word of the Lord. And we thank you for the book of Jeremiah, that it builds our faith, that it gives us hope, that it drives us to Jesus. So help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through it to us this morning. In the power of your Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus In his name we pray, amen. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever listened to the NPR program, National Public Radio, This American Life. And uh, it's an interesting program. And they had this story on a certain subculture of people whose prized possessions are their car stereos. Not their car, but their car stereos. And they are called decibel drag racers. This is actually a thing. I'm not making this up. People flock from all over the world to join them in competition. And like actual drag racers, cars line up across the track. Except in this competition, they're not going anywhere. The winner is the owner of the car stereo that can play at the loudest possible decibel. Oddly enough, that is more odd than the fact that these systems are so powerful and so loud, they can't actually play music. But more odd than that is none of these cars are even drivable. And the world record holder, at the time of the interview with NPR, um, had 900 pounds of concrete poured into the floor of his van, because that helps with the decibels and getting it loud. Windshields usually make it through three competitions before they shatter, and these are special windshields. And one competitor seemed to miss uh, entirely the irony that there is no longer any room for him in his car. He laments, we need more batteries, but that's all the room we have. Now, to anyone outside of this extreme audio sport, not sure what else to call it, irony is probably a generous word to describe this phenomenon. The reporter was far more accurate. He said, Everybody wants to be king of the hill, but the number of aspiring kings always dwarfs the number of available hills. So in this country, we just build more hills. I'm not sure there's a better way to describe it. You know, if you can't be the top dog at something, invent something new to be the top dog at, and now I have the loudest car stereo, and I will brag on that. I read that and I was like, that's really odd, but that's actually very accurate of what's going on in our world and actually in Jeremiah's world. And as I was preparing this message, I came across this really long Greek word, um, and it captured me as much as the man-made hills and undrivable cars. Kyriopoitas, which apparently is a Greek word with a Spanish accent, is a combination of two other Greek words, the first meaning hand and the second to make. So the translation is made with hands. And the word makes its first appearance in the Greek version of the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah. And in something like a satire, the prophet Isaiah questions the effectiveness of the God of the Babylonians and the God of the Chaldeans, Bel and Nebo. And it, Isaiah describes a procession out of the city into exile where Bel and Nebo are burdening down the donkeys. And so he describes this as is in Isaiah 46. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden But themselves go into captivity. And in calamity, the people who serve these gods are not not bowing before them because idols made with hands have to be carried out of the city gates by the very hands that made them. And Isaiah is perplexed by the fact that the people doing this don't really get the irony here. He says... Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes them into a god, and they fall down and worship. And they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer, or save him from his trouble. And part of this is the irony of things worshipped, is quite often lost on the worshiper. The prophet Jeremiah, in the passage we just read, said, they are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. And much like a prized vehicle that can't carry you home from the competition, idols can't answer the cries of the worshippers who made them, And they're not actually worth crying to in the first place. So whether we're building idols or building hills or building undrivable cars, anything that is fashioned by our own hands is not worth worshiping. And so Jeremiah starts with a, actually it's an unflattering comparison. He not only lists some nations that don't follow God, but he puts Judah right in the middle. In other words, he's saying Judah is no different than the surrounding four nations. That should be the first blank there in your outline, four nations. We're backing up into chapter 9 a little bit because I cut it off last week. So screwing up the bulletin for two weeks in a row. Apparently one of my gifts. But we begin this duet with dark ominous words, like the low chords you hear at the beginning of a movie thriller. With this sense of impending doom, God promises to punish all the nations that refuse to worship him. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. It is a preview of coming destruction, coming soon to a nation near you, the justice of God. And divine justice should come as no surprise, because he says, end of verse 26, For all these nations are uncircumcised. But the reality is that wasn't physically true. They were all, he says earlier, circumcised in the flesh. And the shocking thing is God's judging Israel right along with them, saying, and all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. And he's basically saying, even if you have the physical sign, if it's not on the inside, it doesn't count. And God has tossed the sacred in with the profane the circumcised in with the uncircumcised, the clean laundry in with the dirty clothes. And he's telling them his people had become little more than pagans. And the problem is that Israel's religion had become merely external. The people are just going through the motions. They practiced all the outward traditions of the law, but they didn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They circumcised their bodies, but not their hearts. So their faith is, you might say, merely skin deep. And in some ways, it's just the next proof of Israel's unfaithfulness. Back in chapter 7, we saw that Israel's trust in the temple was a lie. Back in chapter 8, we saw that Israel's pride in the law was a lie. And now at the end of chapter 9, we see their trust in the covenant sign is a lie. Identifying themselves by the covenant... And by all the things like the temple and the law and circumcision that go along with the covenant, it's now all being nullified. I mean, circumcision was the sign of the covenant going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 17. was a sign of God's promise to him and to his descendants after him. It was the first act of Joshua when the people moved into the land of promise in Joshua 5. And now God's about to exile them from that land. And he makes the point that even the outward sign of the covenant is no proof of covenant loyalty, no cause for claiming superiority over the other nations, no guarantee of continued survival in the land. In fact, circumcision was practiced by all these other nations. And what's shocking is uh, Jeremiah simply inserts Judah into the list and not even first on the list. As if to say there's really no difference between you and all these other nations you despise. They do what you do. They practice circumcision. But you're just as uncircumcised in reality as they are. You've become no different from the other nations either physically or spiritually. Now circumcision is supposed to be a sign of covenant obedience. We say it's an outward sign of an inward reality. The Apostle Paul makes this clear. He distinguishes sharply between Israel in the flesh, those who are physically circumcised, and Israel in the heart through faith and obedience. And in comparison with the true circumcision of the heart, which he links um, to faith in Christ and to baptism, he says physical circumcision is of no value in and of itself, one way or the other. And he explains that in Romans 2 and Romans 9 and Galatians 5 and Colossians 2. But Paul didn't invent this language. This is Old Testament language. And Jeremiah didn't invent this language. It goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, where it calls for spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart, lived out through hearing and following the word of God in covenant obedience. Now, all of that should remind us as Christians that we have a similar calling. And the Westminster Confession talks about living a baptized life. The Westminster Larger Catechism tells us to improve our baptism. That kind of sounds like strange language. And what it's saying is that New Testament baptism, like Old Testament circumcision, marks the Christian's entrance into the family of God. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. But the act of baptism doesn't save us. The believer has to be baptized in the heart as well as in the flesh, with the Holy Spirit as well as with water. And anyone who's been baptized with water but doesn't live like a Christian is simply demonstrating by how they live that they're not really a Christian. Now, there's this sort of gray area where you're really trying, and you're trying to live like a Christian, and you're trying to do the things that God tells you to do, and you fail regularly. If you don't know what that's like, just come talk to the elders. We'll be able to tell you about that. And I would say there's always hope for those of us who are trying and failing. You know, earlier I mentioned that strange Greek word, uh, karyopoitas, the Greek word with my Spanish accent. I don't know how else to say it. It means made with hands, but it's not the last time it's used in the scriptures, Because in the New Testament, karyopoetas is contrasted with the work a karyopoetas, made without hands. So that which is made with hands is set in stark contrast to that which is made without hands. And so in Colossians, the Apostle Paul encourages believers to see when it comes to the faith, we're not self made men and women. But we're believers transformed by something different, something outside of ourselves. Colossians 2 says, "...in Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith." the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So we have this contrast made with hands to made without hands. You're following idols or you're following the living God. And the reason the prophet Jeremiah sort of lumps all the people of Judah in with the nations because they've been acting like the nations. And the point is that God's people are doing what those other people who are not God's people are doing. They're worshiping idols, and my people are worshiping idols. So he sets out to show this difference between God and idols with four contrasts. Four contrasts, starting at verse 1. And we always have to ask the question, because this is the dominant sin of Israel throughout all of Old Testament history, is the sin of idolatry. Why is idolatry so attractive? And there's a number of reasons For that. And the the first one is simply that everybody's doing it. Idolatry is supported by the weight of public opinion. And Jeremiah describes idol worship as the ways of the nations, a custom of the peoples. Starting at verse one Hear the word the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of nations nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. He says that they're vanity, they're useless, they're worthless. And he starts by showing their weakness. And that's the first contrast, weakness versus power. And and it sort of forces us to ask the question, are idols something or nothing? That is, are the false gods that people worship real in any way, or are they simply imaginary? And the question needs careful definition, because if we ask it in relation to human culture and human behavior, then yes, idolatry is a powerful force. Whether you think of the named gods of major religions or the unnamed gods of secular culture, such as consumerism or materialism or pluralism or relativism or narcissism, or there's probably a dozen more isms that you could pick. There's something there in the spiritual power of religion and ideologies. But then if we ask the question in relationship to the one living and true God, then the answer is no, because in comparison to God, all false gods are nothing at all. To be more precise, they are no gods. They are not God things. They are, in fact, made with hands that's the phrase that's most commonly used to describe idols in the old testament and it's telling us that idols we worship are either man-made creations or more likely today human constructs things we either make with our hands or we make with our minds now at the physical level the point's pretty obvious The statues of the gods may be terribly fancy and expensive, but Jeremiah says they are like verse 5, a scarecrow in a cucumber field. That may be the most comic metaphor for idolatry ever invented. Um, You know, and the Old Testament generally has a lot of fun with the absurdity of the idols. You know, they have all the body parts, but they can't do anything with them. Again, verse 5 says, they cannot speak. They have to be carried because they can't walk. And he even says, make sure you nail them down because the one thing you don't want is for your idol to fall off the shelf. And that's really what he's saying. Don't forget to nail them down. Hammer them down. Because this all-powerful false god, we don't want him falling over. And it sort of reminds you of the whole, you know, Elijah and the Baals and that whole... Uh, dramatic uh, encounter um, between the prophet Elijah and all the false prophets of Baal, and they're all shouting for their God, and he's like, you need to shout louder. He can't hear you. You know, maybe he went to the bathroom. We should wait for him to get back, and it says it nicer than that, but that's really what he says, and, you know, there's, so there's very often this sort of comic undertone because we should be laughing at idols, but we're not. And, uh, and the reality is the point's actually serious because it's not just that the statues that they're making are made by hands, but the gods themselves are figments of our imagination. They're constructs. They're fabrications. And once exposed as frauds and as weak, then they're not to be either feared or trusted. He says they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. And then we get the contrast. So we go from the polemic to the psalm. The Lord is incomparable in greatness and power, sovereign over all nations, verses 6 and 7. That's a truth Israel's known since Moses turned it into a song in Exodus 15. It makes sense. Idols are weak because they're lifeless, and that's the second contrast, the lifeless versus the living. Except now the focus is really changing from the idols to the idol worshipers. It would seem there's a reference in verse 8, they're both stupid and foolish. You know, I grew up, I wasn't allowed to use that word. I use a lot of other words, but my mother didn't like that word, and she would get on me. But It's here three times in the Bible, so I feel like I'm getting away with something. But he says they're stupid and foolish. He's actually referring back to the ones in verse 7 who claim to be wise, the wise ones of the nations. That's who he's saying they're not wise at all. And he's not saying that they lack intellect. He's saying they exhibit moral and religious deficiency. Their thinking has been dominated by idolatry. They are taught by worthless Wooden idols. And he has another one of these sort of comic phrases here. The thought seems to be that because the idols themselves are pieces of wood, no matter how carefully carved or uh, cleverly decorated, so their teaching, their instruction, their correction that pervades these religions doesn't rise any higher than the piece of wood. It says their instruction is but a piece of wood. This is the prophet Jeremiah's way of saying that they're as dumb as a rock. That's what he's saying. That's kind of how we would say that today. He's saying, their wood, whatever they say is wood, their instruction is wood, and you know, anything that you think you're learning from them is wood. It's probably nicer than how we would say it. But he goes on and describes them in verse 9, and we read, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. I mean, silver is hammered into thin sheets, and then they sort of cover the idol, uh, the wooden idol, with silver. And, uh, and then they take these little figures, and they carry them to the craftsmen, and the idols are covered in silver or gold, and they're dressed up in royal clothes. It says they are the work of the craftsmen of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple, and they're all the work of skilled men. And the idea is silver, gold, and these special clothes is only afforded by rich people, but no expense is spared for the idols. Their garments are produced with great care. And Jeremiah is putting this in the context of these people are claiming to be wise, but all of this is actually stupid and foolish. And then once again, we move from the polemic to the psalm, and we start verse 10. And against this sort of polemic against the high cost of false idols and dressing them up and decorating them and making them look real fancy, he says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. So we constantly have this contrast going on. And the true God is the one whose existence is real, who can be dependent on. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a product of skillful artists. It's been made clear the idols are lifeless, without power or speech. But God is the one who has life in himself. What's more, he is the everlasting king. He's a king whose reign doesn't end. As the ever-living God, he has all the time he needs to work out his purposes. Not only does he have life in himself, he gives life. And idols can't do that because they're mere creations. That's the third contrast, creations versus creator. Starting at verse 11, you know, since these false gods didn't make the heavens and the earth as the true and living God did, they can only be objects within the created order, and therefore they have to be perishable like all other created things. If you think about it, that is indeed their fate and has been. I mean, where are, after all, all the gods of Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, and Rome? Some of them seem to rule the world of their day. And now we only know them through archaeology and ancient texts and legends. History is the graveyard of the gods. And that's what verse 11 says. The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and for under the heavens. There's a little side note here. I wasn't going to include this, but I thought it was kind of cool. So here it is. This is the only verse, verse 11, in the entire book of Jeremiah that's written in Aramaic. The rest of the book is written in Hebrew. Just this one verse. And that's because there's a play on words here that not only doesn't work in English, it doesn't work in Hebrew either. And in Aramaic, the words for make and perish are spelled the same. A-B-A-D, pronounced avad. Avad but they have different accents. And so if you are reading it in the Aramaic, and this is as God is speaking, it would read, the gods who did not evade the heavens and the earth shall evade from the earth. And God is declaring the eternal fate of false idols. He's saying they weren't here at the beginning and they're not going to be here at the end. And I think the change in language forced everybody to stop and kind of look it up to make sure they didn't miss the point. And after that, we move again from the polemic to the psalm, from the criticism of the idols to the greatness of God. And this, I think, are the key verses of the chapter because God's not only powerful. He's not only the one true and living Lord. He's not only the everlasting king. He made people and gave life to all that is. Verse 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. This is God's work of creation, his making the world and everything in it and all of it very good. And that is what God did. But now we add what God does to what God did. His providence is his work as much as his creation. You know, these verses are telling us that God just didn't wind up the world like the watchmaker and let it go. He created the world and continues to sustain the world by the word of his power. Verse 13, when he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The providence of God extends to the rain, the clouds, The lightning, the wind, even the snow, as hard as that is to believe. I mean, this is a beautiful psalm in the middle of these harsh words against the idols in order to praise a God of wonders. And just in these two verses, Jeremiah has given us an entire Sunday school class on the doctrine of God. I mean, it's covering the uniqueness, the power, the sovereignty, the wisdom, the truth, the eternity, the creation, and the providence of God, all in two verses. And there's one last contrast, because they had a ton of false idols, but there's only one true God. And so there's a comparison of the many to the one. And I'm just going to focus in on the one, starting in verse 14. It might be tempting to think that this almighty God of wonders is really out of our reach, But Jeremiah kind of saves the best for last. He dismisses um, any thoughts, any doubts about having a friendship with this omnipotent and eternal God. Verse 16, he says, Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So, truly, he reaffirms that uh, God is the one who formed all things. But what he made includes Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. So, in addition to making the heavens and the earth, God makes a people for himself. Deuteronomy 32 says, you may be getting the point, Jeremiah uses a lot of Deuteronomy in his writings. He goes back there, he pulls that out often. And Deuteronomy 32 says, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is allotted heritage. Now, a portion is a share of an inheritance. When the children of Israel entered the promised land, they each received a portion of the land. And to say that God's people are his portion is to say that they belong to him. Jeremiah even calls them God's inheritance as if they're God's prized possession, which they are. At the same time, God belongs to his people. He's entered into a mutual relationship with them through Christ. Jesus is our inheritance in Christ. We get God the Father, a portion of divinity, so to speak. He's our possession. He's ours by grace. He's ours in Christ. Jesus refers to this in John 14. He says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And he's making the point that, you know, you, God gets you, but you get God. It's a relationship that goes both ways. And to have a portion of God is to have the ultimate inheritance. If God is your portion, you don't need any others. And Jeremiah knew this from his own experience. He's called the weeping prophet. He's often in distress we actually know more about him personally than any of the other prophets because he wrote about being afflicted, about having his heart pierced, becoming a laughingstock, having his teeth broken, and regularly writes about being downcast, and in the midst of his distress and writing about all the worst things in his life, Jeremiah remembers that he has the ultimate. Inheritance. We see that in the middle of the book of Lamentations, which we'll get to at the very end of this series. But in Lamentations 3, he says, But this I call to mind. He's gone through a long list of everything that's wrong with his people, with him, with his life, with his country. It's basically all bad. And then he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know the song. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Jeremiah never let go of his portion of God. So what do we do with this? Jeremiah leaves us with a description of two responses at the end of the chapter. The first response says we can refuse to change and accept our fate. We keep after our idols, even our modern American ones, and God will lead us into distress. Verse 18, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. I mean, this is a major shock from Jeremiah. He's given this great description of the exile and grief, and then this wonderful um, psalm of praise to the greatness of God, and they're kind of like, okay, which way? And then he says and I'm chucking you out of the land. And the people who had the creator of the universe as their portion, the privilege of being his inheritance, are pictured packing up their belongings and hitting the road as refugees, slung out of the land they thought was theirs forever. But since they had insisted on exchanging the glory of God for the worthlessness of idols, they're now paying the cost in exchanging the blessing of the land for the curse of the exile. Nothing is left but to wait for the invasion from the north that Jeremiah has been warning them about since the beginning of chapter 1. Or there's a second response. We can refuse to give up on God and throw ourselves on his mercy. And that's what Jeremiah does. Verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, on the peoples that call not on your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him and have laid waste his habitation. Jeremiah's prayer begins with this humble acceptance of man's limits and God's sovereignty, moves on to plead for God's mercy, and concludes by appealing for God's justice. And in verse 24, Jeremiah identifies himself with the people as a whole. He accepts the fact that he'll have to endure what the people themselves will suffer. if, If God brings judgment against them, they're bringing judgment against him. Now, it's easy to look at all of this and say, so what? I love God. I haven't abandoned God. I'm not creating idols in my own image. How does any of this apply to me? And for you, we have... The Jesus test. This is an actual test. In his book, With, Sky Jathani tells about a test that Dr. Scott McKnight, who's a professor of religious studies at North Park, Park College in Chicago, he gives every year to his students. He, uh, Dr. McKnight's well-respected, evangelical, somewhat controversial uh, guy, and he teaches every year, he teaches a class on Jesus. And he begins the class on Jesus with a test. And the test has a series of questions about what the students think Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or is he an introvert? And there's 24 questions. And then it's followed by a second set of 24 more questions with slightly altered language in which the students answer questions about their own personalities. And he's not the only one who's administered this exam. It's been field tested by professionals and the results are remarkably consistent. Everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. (laughs) And Dr. McKnight adds, the test results suggest even though we would like to think that we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is more the case. We're trying to make Jesus... More like ourselves. And his personality questionnaire confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire said, uh, 300 years ago, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. John Calvin once said, the human heart is an idol factory. And when we imagine Jesus to be just like us, then our idol factory is running at full capacity. And our only response, like Jeremiah's, is to plead for God's mercy and appeal for God's justice. Jeremiah asked God for corrective justice. He asked for the kind of discipline that a good father would give to a child. He asked to be chastised with loving discipline, not to be destroyed, but to be built up and helped to become obedient. He asked for merciful justice. He asked for the kind of justice that King David got. King David said, Psalm 118, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And Jeremiah is willing to be corrected the same way. He's willing to be chastised for his own benefit. He's willing to be disciplined uh, through the suffering with the people of God. He's begging for the merciful justice of God, the justice that corrects but does not destroy. Now, the basis for corrective judgment is the death and resurrection of Christ. God's justice is tempered with mercy through the cross of Christ. If Christ hadn't died for our sins, we would deserve the justice of destruction. But Christ did die for our sins, so we only get the justice of correction. Jeremiah's sufferings are a reminder of the grace of the cross. They show the way that Jesus took our destruction on himself. Jeremiah said, I belong to the people of God, so I'll suffer whatever they deserve to suffer. I'll be disciplined however they should be disciplined. I'll be crushed when they're crushed. And Jesus said the same thing. When Jesus agreed to die for the sins of His people, He said, I belong to the people of God, so I'll suffer whatever they deserve to suffer. I'll be disciplined however they should be disciplined. I'll be crushed when they're crushed. And Jesus identified so closely with His people That their sufferings became his sufferings. Their judgment became his judgment. Their punishments his punishment. These sufferings are what the people of God deserve for their sins. They're what we deserve for our sins as well. We deserve to be wounded, abandoned, and scattered for our sins. We deserve the justice of destruction. But in Christ, we only find correction. Jesus was wounded, abandoned, and scattered for our sins. And his suffering is satisfied the destructive justice of God against our wickedness. So whatever sufferings we suffer are not for our destruction. They are for our correction and our restoration. They're part of God's merciful justice. And so when they come, and they will, and we will wonder, we need to say with Jeremiah, When we hit that low point. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. closing prayer this morning is actually based on Jeremiah 10, so it's a little bit longer, but it's based on this passage. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our God, as Jeremiah says, so we say, great is your name. You are mighty in power and worthy of all honor, adoration, and reverence, and we gather together as your people to give you your due. We praise you as the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Lord, your word here describes the foolishness of idolatry, the giving of allegiance to created things that cannot provide life and do not provide satisfaction. Father, though we're not guilty of fashioning wooden idols, we are guilty of being taught by and following the worthless idols of our society. And though we're not tempted to bow down to hammered silver The temptation is hammered into our heads that happiness is found in the attainment of some ideal. We're guilty of idolizing the ideal life, the ideal job, the ideal spouse, the ideal home, the ideal situation. And in idolizing such things, we distract ourselves from the true source of joy and satisfaction, you. Lord, we confess this today, and we confess along with Jeremiah that you are a righteous God who would be just in bringing your wrath upon us. And Because of this, it is upon your great mercy that we cast ourselves. Our only hope is that you will be pleased to forgive, and it is with great joy, therefore, that we look upon the work of your Son, Jesus. As a faithful son, Jesus never bowed to idols or sought to better his situation by manipulating his circumstances, and because you are indeed a God of great mercy, you have credited us with his faithfulness, and you have placed the punishment for our our idolatry upon him. Thank you for your grace and mercy upon us, and may this truth be the garment of joy and hope in which we dress ourselves. We read also in this text that you are not only the king of Jeremiah, the king of Israel, but you're the king of all the nations as well. And Lord, we know that there are many nations even now that are steeped in great idolatry. Some still have literal idols of wood, silver, and gold. And some have idols similar to those in our own society. And we know that many of these places, this good news of your son Jesus is not known. Many nations do not know the God who made them and the only God who can save them. We pray for these nations, Father. As Jesus has instructed us to pray, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will be done on earth, over the whole earth, as it is in heaven. We pray that you would show your mercy to the nations because they cannot endure your wrath. Though you are just to judge, we pray that you would use your church, this church, to extend your mercy across creation, And we ask these things in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.